you recall from last time, we uh, closed out the ninth chapter of Mark, looking at how we should deal with our sin, and Christ gave some very vivid and strong language to help us understand that we need to be ruthless in dealing with sin. We must deal with it in the church, and we must deal with it in our own hearts. And here in chapter 10, Mark's uh, account of Christ's teaching takes a bit of a turn, and we see uh, a topic that was important to the Pharisees, obviously, to Christ's disciples, and it's certainly important to us today. What we see is Christ's teaching on divorce. And while it may initially seem like an abrupt uh, change of topic, it should be considered as part of Christ's teaching on what it means to be a disciple. Remember, we've said all along through this book, we've said there's three questions that Mark is helping us to understand. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, here in this text, we see what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the area of marriage. So if you are a follower of Christ, or even if you're not... I invite you to hear what Jesus says about marriage as God designed it. So let us look to God's word and seek his help as we do so. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word has been given to us, that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is inspired by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we, your people, might be built up and instructed and understand what your will is for us. Bless our time together, Lord. We need you. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as you carried along men of old in inspiring this word, may you enlighten it to our hearts tonight. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O God, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. I come to this topic and this text this evening with a degree of caution and trepidation as I consider this subject that is so much, is so prevalent in the world today, but not just in the world, in the church 
as well. For divorce is something that I'm sure has affected everyone here in some way or another. Perhaps it's your parents that have been divorced and and you have seen the pain of that tearing asunder of the division of the marriage bond. Perhaps it's you that have gone through divorce and you know firsthand the pain that comes from this. So, but this evening, this sermon is not going to focus on what constitutes biblical grounds for divorce, although we will touch on that. But rather, it is more upon the emphasis of knowing well the design and the importance of godly marriage. Because this is the way that Christ answers the question that comes to him from the Pharisees. And I want us to consider this text under four headings. The first two points are, are questions that we see right there in the text. One, is it lawful? Two, what did Moses command you? And then points three and four are statements that Jesus made, that God made and God joined. Two questions and two statements. First of all, just a quick geographical note that I think we need to keep our finger upon as we, as we think about the progress of Christ and the disciples through the first chapter and much of his ministry that Mark account, recounts for us is in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And now we've, we've said previously that there's been a change of direction in kind of the, the emphasis of the text, but also geographically in where Jesus is going, that he is headed to Jerusalem. And here we see that it's, it's recorded for us in verse 1 that he is in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So he's back now down, getting closer to Jerusalem. And so what we see in the next chapter, in chapter 11, is his triumphal entry that we know marks the beginning of what we know as Passion Week and the events of his suffering and his death. So we see the stage is being set so that we can understand and know what Jesus came to do. That question that we said Mark poses for us, what did Jesus come to do? He came to save, to seek and save sinners. And he did that through his suffering and through his death. So the first question that the Pharisees ask, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now we need to look at this question a bit closer. For we notice that the text tells us explicitly that the Pharisees came in order to test him. I believe it's three times in the, in the book of Mark that, that we read about the Pharisees testing Jesus. That verb to test is used. It's also used, interestingly, in chapter 1 when Jesus was tempted by Satan. It's the same root word that's translated tempted there as Jesus is, is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. So this should help us to see the hypocrisy and the evil intentions of these men. The text makes it plain that their purpose was to test him. They were constantly seeking to lay a net to trap Jesus in his teaching. And remember that it was just back in chapter 6 where we read about John the Baptist and how he was imprisoned and ultimately beheaded for his teaching and his prophesying, in a sense, about the unlawful marriage of Herod and Herodias. But now Jesus is in the territory of Herod Antipas. And 
perhaps the Pharisees were trying to lay a net to trap him, to ensnare him and ask him about this topic of divorce. And what seems to be implied here is what, what the book of Matthew makes explicit in its account in Matthew 19, where it recounts this as, as the Pharisees' question as saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So what is behind that question? Well, the scripture that's behind the question, if we look at the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy 24, where the law provided details on how a man was to divorce his wife if she had, as the text says, lost favor in his eyes because there was found to be some indecency in her. Now, this was a much debated text within the Pharisees, and there had arisen two schools of thought and two interpretations of that text in Deuteronomy 24.1. The first took a very narrow view and said, it is only, divorce is only allowable in the case of adultery. They saw that indecency and they, they described it as some type of indecency or sexual unfaithfulness to the husband. But the others took a much more liberal line. This other school of thought said, well, it can be for a variety of reasons. A man can divorce his wife even if she burns his supper. Or even if he finds another woman that he finds more attractive. So they took this very loose view of what was, was scriptural um, grounds for divorce. While this other school had a very conservative view. But remember that the allowability of divorce is not what's being questioned here. They're more trying to feel Jesus out to see what camp he's in. And probably more so, they were trying to trip him up. And perhaps even bring about his demise. But then Jesus asks him, them a question. He, sa- he poses the second question that we come to. What did Moses command you? Instead of taking their bait and taking sides with them, with one of these schools of thought, Jesus turns the tables on them and asks, okay, what did Moses? You all love the law. What did Moses command? But there's a hook in that question, and it's revealed by their answer. Because they had to admit that it wasn't a command of Moses. It was an allow, something that, they, that Moses allowed. Because in verse 4, if you'll look at it with me, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The Old Testament law allowed divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus personalizes it here. And I think this, the text here in verse 5 where it says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Certainly, of course, these Pharisees were not alive in the time of Moses. But Jesus is saying to them, it is your hardness of heart, just like it was the hardness of heart of the people under Moses' administration that made an allowance for divorce a necessity because of sin. And there are instances in which divorce is allowed, but it is never God's plan, as we'll see more so here in a few moments. Divorce is never a good thing. It is not God's design. God does not condone divorce. And what Jesus does instead of focusing on divorce, he points them to what God has designed. There are instances where divorce is the necessary course, as we've said, due to sinful or perhaps even criminal acts of one party. But we need to remember that 
the text here and the text even in Deuteronomy 24 is not really about what is acceptable grounds. The, verse, the, the, the reference in Deuteronomy 24 becomes very technical, actually, because it talks about whether a man can remarry his wife after she's married another and that spouse dies. And, and so what, what is, it's, it's not, we won't go into all that here, but what's important for us to see is that Jesus doesn't get embroiled in the debate between these two schools of thought. He knows their sinful hearts. He knows they're just looking for loopholes. And he reminds them that Moses and the law only allowed divorce because of sin. But then Jesus shows them what God's design for marriage truly is. He tells them what God made. Look with me in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He starts with creation. He starts with the created order of man made in God's image, man made as male and female. He takes them back to the first pages of Scripture, Scriptures that these Pharisees knew well, to the creation account, to Genesis 1.27, which says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And that reminds us of our special status as humans, as image bearers of God. Created as two genders, male and female, which both bear God's image and beautifully complement each other and allow for the propagation of mankind over the face of the earth and the dominion that he commands in those next few verses in Genesis 1, 28 and 29. God said that gender is given to us at birth and it is part of the created order. It is part of God's good design in his creation and how we glorify him as his image bearers. One commentator said that genderedness is God's good gift and its abuse is a serious affront to the holiness of God. And I would add to the wisdom of God as well because we bear God's image. So we must consider how God has made us and, and, and how we are to function in light of that created order. We can learn much about gender and relationships from Genesis 1 and 2. We see that God made man first in his own image and it was good. But we also see that man was not complete alone. He said in Genesis 2 that it was not good that a man should be alone. And because of this he would make him a helper. And then, of course, you know, God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of his ribs and from that made a woman. Adam and Eve then came together in a one flesh husband and wife relationship. And it's, it's vital that we see how these holy and special acts of God in creation, how Significant they are in making two sexes, two distinct individuals, both made in God's image, both special objects of creation, made to be together in a one flesh monogamous relationship. Jesus here is, is reestablishing, in a sense, the created order of God's design for marriage, a monogamous, heterosexual relationship for life. This one flesh relationship that he that he, this language that he uses in quoting Genesis 1 and 2, it refers to the covenant bond between a husband and wife. It also refers to the consummation of that covenant bond in the sexual union of husband and wife. But 
we must understand the significance of this. And, and there, is, there is much to say about this. Especially in the confused age in which we live when it comes to gender. Now you may object and say, well, okay, well if that's God's plan that husbands and wife be married, does God not call some to singleness? Well, certainly, he does. We see that Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 about the advantages of singleness. And God calls some people to that for a lifetime. He calls some to that for a season. But the scriptural norm is marriage. God made man and woman for each other. Woman was made for man, but man was not complete without the woman. We even see this in the names um, in the Hebrew, man is Ish and woman is Isha. I'm, I, I realize, I just glanced back at Marcus and realized, I hope I don't mess this up. <laughs> but even, it even comes over into our English, man and woman. There's a connection there. And we must preserve that. This marriage connection between man and woman, one man and one woman, is the scriptural norm. And it even takes priority over one's parents, the relationship with one's parents. Remember that in chapter 7, Jesus condemned those that would try to skirt the law in regard to the fifth commandment of honoring our parents. So Jesus puts much much emphasis upon the fifth commandment. But he says here, the marriage bond takes precedence over the relationship with one's parents. And let me add this. The marriage should take, relation, should take precedence over your relationship, parents, with your children. Your children will be secure knowing that your marriage is strong. I think that there are times in which parents live their lives for their children. And they sacrifice time with their spouse in order to make sure everything's all right with their children. And I know that in, for some of you, your, your, your children, for one reason or another, require much care. And it does put stress upon the marriage. But the marriage, there must be time and attention given to it to nurture it. We are reminded that the, the, within the marriage, it is designed to serve one another. Remember that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And then he turns right around and says also that the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Certainly we, learn, we know from Ephesians 5 and other places in Scripture that the man does have authority within the marriage relationship. He is called to be the head over the wife. But there is a mutual submission that husbands and wives are called to. In the Lord. Ephesians tells us that a man is to lay aside his own interests and love his wife sacrificially as he loves his own body. The wife is called to set aside her self interest and submit to and respect her husband. There is a priority and a sanctity of the marriage relationship that God established at creation. And the reason for this priority is that God has joined it. So God has joined husbands and wives in marriage. And he says here, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is instituted by God. 
It's an institution that was established at creation for the mutual help and encouragement of the husband and wife, for the propagation of mankind, for the building up of the church through covenant children, and to prevent sexual uncleanness. It's a covenant institution. Now, I had a friend that that I knew when I was younger. Fortunately, he did not have the influence over me that he might have had otherwise, because I grew up in a, in a strong family, and, and I'm, I'm blessed to have parents that have been married for over 60 years. But this, this young man was divorced and bitter, and he said, marriage is an institution, and anybody that's married belongs in one. Now, that's not from God's word, certainly. That was the, the word of a, of a bitter young man. But God has established marriage, and our marriage is... Saints of God, we need to think of our marriages as being joined by God because that's what they are. We should not treat that lightly. And no human has the right to rip apart what God has joined together. What God has glued together, we should not let anything else come in between that. And here Jesus is going after the Pharisees' casual attitude towards marriage and divorce. So they, they, some of them, at least, seem to think they could just get rid of their wife on any whim. But Jesus says, no, your marriage is brought together by God. It's orchestrated for his glory. We learn more about the beauty, beauty and the sanctity of marriage in Ephesians 5. And we see how that our marriages are designed to reflect the love that Christ has for his church. So let me ask you this evening, how is your marriage Reflecting the love that Christ has for his church. Husbands, are you loving your wives sacrificially? Are you laying aside your own interest to to pray for, to love your wife sacrificially? Your marriage is joined by God. Perhaps you've prayed and prayed for a spouse and and. God has finally brought someone into your life after your years of waiting, and you recognize that that's a gift of God, and that God has joined you together. Perhaps you got married young, without even a thought, hardly. God has joined your marriage together as well. God has joined us together in marriage if we are married tonight. God is sovereign even over whom we marry I've heard some people say that they didn't marry according to God's will. And and some would even use that as an excuse for divorce. But that in itself does not give you a right to divorce. Paul speaks to believers whose spouse is unsaved. They are to pray for them. They are to seek to raise their children still in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they are to be part of a church where they can be fed and nourished, even if they're lacking a spouse that loves the Lord. We are to make our marriage the best picture of the love that Christ has for his church. And we should treat our marriage as created and instituted by God because it is. So practically, what, how, how does this help us? Now I recognize that I'm, I'm talking to individuals here that, that as I said at the outset have suffered from the pains and the and the agony of divorce. I remember when we lived in Kansas and God led us to a reformed church and there, were, there was much emphasis on the family there. There were quite a number of large families. And one of the families who was a founding member of, of that Reformed Baptist congregation 
Um, we, I think, were, had, had left that church, and we heard a few years later that they had, had um, divorced. And I remember how painful that was to me as a young man. And um, uh, they, they had a number of children, and they homeschooled, and I naively thought that, okay, these are the perfect examples of what a godly family looks like. And I was just crushed when I realized that sin had ravaged even that marriage. And it, it reminded me that nobody is safe. We've got to fight for our marriages, folks. We've got to take it seriously that there are forces working upon marriages that will tear us apart. And, and some of them are obvious and some of them are not. And I beg of you, if you are suffering from that, if you are going through that, don't hesitate to reach out. Don't hesitate to reach out for help from, from the pastors or from the elders or from a friend to say, we're struggling. Because Satan would like nothing more to come between husbands and wives. Remember Ephesians 5 tells us that the, the marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And if the world sees our marriages falling apart, what does that say about Christ's love for his church? Certainly we know that Christ is, is faithful and has bound himself by a covenant to his people. But for the worldly people outside, they bring accusations against us on account of that. So remember, don't hesitate to reach out. So what do you do if, if you're suffering for this? Well, remember that the church is here for you. If you have gone through a divorce, if you're going through a divorce... And, and there are um, situations in which Scripture gives us um, guidance on this. It also says in, in Matthew 19 that, that adultery is biblical grounds for divorce. And, and Paul says in 1 uh, Corinthians about desertion. And our, our confession um, gives details about that as, as we think about these matters pastorally. If there's, there's, there's much that could be said about this, and I don't intend to give this a full treatment tonight. Um, if you're interested, the, the PCA um, actually formed a study committee um, years ago, early in the days of our denomination, in the early 80s, to deal with this subject. And there's about 100 pages of writing about this and how to deal with this situation pastorally and biblically. So what do you... For, for unmarried, how do you think about this? Well, certainly I think that um, if you are unmarried, you should make a solemn covenant with yourself and your friends and your parents that you will only marry a believer and that you will marry for life. I think that too many times young people go into marriage thinking that it's, you know, if it doesn't work out, they can just divorce. And I am grateful that I grew up in an environment where divorce was, was not talked about. But marry a believer and marry for life. Sometimes young people get tied up in knots about who they're supposed to marry. Uh, one of my seminary professors says, well, it's really simple. You marry a believer of the opposite gender. <laughs> well, I think it's important that you love that person, okay, it, it is important, as our confession also notes, that they're not closely related to you. But really, it's, it's not as complicated as we sometimes make it. You know, that, that God brings people together. And you know what? He usually brings opposites together. And usually that just is, 
insanely irritating at times. But yet God uses our marriage for, for our sanctification, for, to grow us in holiness. And I, I picked the songs that I did this evening because they focused upon the home. And, and frankly, they were almost overly idealistic at times. Because in reality, life is hard. And marriage is hard. And we have to work hard to love as Christ loved the church. But there's great joy in marriage. Marriage is challenging, especially when you're married to such a big sinner. But you know what? Your spouse is married to an equally big sinner. And we have to remember that, that we are sinners in a relationship. And hopefully you're both seeking to glorify God in that relationship. J.C. Ryle gives three tips for marriage. And there's, there's a lot that more that could be said, but this is good advice. He says... Number one, marry only in the Lord and after much prayer for God's approval and blessing. Okay, that's scriptural, certainly. Secondly, he says, don't expect too much of your spouse. Marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners, not two angels. That's true, certainly. So many times we, we have unmet or unrealized expectations or poorly communicated expectations that result in strife. And thirdly, J.C. Ryle says, strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. The more holy married people are, the more holy they will be. Strive for one another's sanctification. So we should, we have to fight for our marriages, as I've said. There are forces, there's people, there's pressures, there's jobs, there's temptations. There's many things that can come in and tear our marriages apart. But we as God's people, should not expect marriage to be easy. We should recognize that that we, if if you and your spouse are both believers, you are walking together on this road of life, seeking to glorify God. And too many times Satan puts help, makes us think only about the differences and only about the things that irritate us. And we need to lift our eyes to Christ because the more holy we become the more happy our marriages are. Remember, you're sinners. You're married to a sinner. And yet, we also have to remember that that our spouse is a trophy of God's grace. And we are a trophy of God's grace if we are in Christ. And and we so often forget that. We we just, the devil beats us down because of, of our sin and our temptation and our guilt. But yet, we need to see what Christ has done. And the glory and the beauty of being united to Christ. And we need to see the same thing about our spouse. Because if we see them in that light, if we see them as as saints that are growing in grace, it it can change our outlook. And finally, we should pray for each other. Pray for your marriage, saints of God. Pray for your spouse and seek their sanctification. Husbands, as spiritual leaders of the family, do you pray regularly with and for your wife? Let me remind you again that if you are struggling, seek help. That's what the church is for. That's what your pastors and elders are for. For all of us, we are part of the body of Christ. The church is here for your encouragement. And may God give us grace to reflect the love that Christ has for his church in our marriages. Let us pray.